0: You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. (laughs) It is May. It is a new month. We're, we're pushing through this spring and things are coming together. And I am just super excited, especially especially with everything that's been going on this weekend. Um, I went out to dinner last night at Chima, which I haven't been to in about a couple of months. And it's, listen, Chima, I don't know. I don't know if the meat is good. I don't know what they've been doing. But it is, it's something going on in a good way. The food was just so on point. Um I don't know. You know you go to a restaurant like that, like a Fogo the Child, places like that, these steakhouses, and sometimes like hear a miss. Like, I just feel like, and I know it's like the same food, but I'm like, is the lamb, did I get the lamb on a good day? I don't know. It just, it was, it hit different, <laughs> if that makes sense. It just, it just was, it was just a hit. And so I had dinner with um, my executive board for the Philadelphia Association of Black like, Journalists. We had like a little board dinner, retreat gathering. And it was fabulous. It was, it was dinner done right. I was very um happy about my service. And I really thought the variety was crazy. Like I don't I I, I didn't even know they had everything they had. I think the last time I went to Chima, like through my what, I think it was my 27th birthday. So that was about three years ago. And I think it was like they had steaks, they had other stuff, but it was like they had sirloin, they had different other types of steak, they had a leg of lamb, they had lamb chops, they had shrimp, I was like, oh, they had um, they had something else too. It was just a bunch of things that I don't remember being on the menu the last time I went. I was like, oh my goodness, they have all this lamb, they had shrimp, they had salmon, of course, which I remember they had the last time I went. But there were just all these other additional meats and seafood. I was like, this is different. And we didn't do anything special. We didn't do an upgrade or anything. We did the traditional, you know, Brazilian style. But I was like, okay, all right. I'll take it. I'll take it all. Which I did. And the crazy part is is that, oh, you know how they have like the pineapple? Oh my god, that was yeah, that was fun too. They have the um this little card that they put on the table. And the orange color means you can go. The black means you have to stop. It's like uh, on and off um, for the people to come. And I was thinking to myself, what if you had this card for, like, different things? Like, I don't know, sex. You said, okay, no, flip the card over, yes. <laughs> or, like, if you was at your office and you didn't want people to come to your desk or talk to you, or, at the moment, you could just flip the card if the card was on red, People know they can talk. If it was on black, it means no, don't talk to me. Like, I just, like, I need to use this card for different things. Like, I need to bring this out and pull this out. Like, if I'm somewhere, I'm in my phone, I'm on the phone, and, and somebody is, like, trying to reach me, I should just have it on my back and say, no, thank you. <laughs> not for me, but just for you to talk to me. Or not to meet to get it, like M-E-E-T. <laughs> well, whatever. I just think that that would be... Um, useful in so many different ways. But I really... I really enjoyed myself. I thought it was so good. I just know that, like, you can't do something like that, like, every month. I that That is something, like, places like that, whether it's Fogo or Chima, I think, you know, I'm going to have to be a little biased. I think Chima is better than Fogo. I don't know. Maybe I haven't been to Fogo in a minute. Maybe I need to go back to Fogo and try it out. But, like, maybe another season. So, like, places like that, I feel like you can't go every month. It's just ridiculous. It's just it's gluttony. Like, it's just too much. It was just, like I said, something like this, I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to savor this because I cannot go back if I really want to, you know, look the same. (laughs) Like, I couldn't do this every month. I would have to do this like every season. So, okay, it's spring. I'll see you all in like August. If I want to go back, I'll go back in August. But I, I just cannot do something like that every month or every week. Or It's just, yeah, it would just be ridiculous. But like, I hadn't been to Chima in a minute, but I feel like that's like a celebratory thing. Like, that's where you go for graduation, birthdays, or you know, you want to celebrate with your group or whatever. It's like, and it's easy to go because it's something for everyone. Like, one of the board members, you know, they don't eat red meat. So they were just super excited about the fact that they can eat shrimp and salmon. And there was chicken, so they was able to have some variety without changing the bill or anything because the food was kind of unlimited. And that salad bar is fire. I mean, that salad bar is just top tier. But, yeah, I was like, yeah, I love Chima. And it was a lot to celebrate this week because, as you all know, uh, by now, unless you've been living under a rock or you just have been completely on a social media um, hiatus, my book, The case for Council Culture, um, the pre-sales have officially begun. Yes, the cover is out. The book is available for pre-order. You can get your copy right now. It won't come into the mail until February 21st, 2023, which is the official release date for the book. That is official. It's public. So it's been said. So it's been written. Yes, February 21st, 2023. Is the big, 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 big day of the release publicly at a bookstore or everywhere where books are sold. Uh, This is exciting. St. Martin's Press is the publisher under Macmillan, which is, you know, one of the big four, big five, you know, book distributors across the world, across the country. It's a big deal. Um, But you can pre order your book now, and many of you have. And I'm proud to say that you all made it number one of the new releases on Amazon. It's on the charts. It's still on the charts. It's actually, as of right now, trying higher than Mark Lamont Hills book, which comes out this week. You know, just an observation with the data. You know, no, not comparing. Just so happy to look at the charts. And I said, here's where I'm at. And I saw that. I said, interesting. You know, he has a co-author. Him and someone else is writing a book. This book is written by myself, Solo um 256 pages y'all the number count the book is going to be 256 pages and and to be honest with you you know going through edits and revisions you know that we to get down to that final number was not easy but it's 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 work Um, a lot of you was asking me over the weekend like how did you make the time to do it how did you pull it off listen for those who've been following this this journey um, since season one, you know, I got the book deal in April of last year. And I've been writing this book for the past year. It's been a year. Um, But when when you do a book proposal, you know, you work towards a plan. You have to execute an outline of what you think you want to write about like you you know book deals don't just come to people and just say I got an idea it, you, you kind of have to put some legwork in and do some pre, pre, prior research so a lot of the research I mean to be honest the, the whole process was three years you know we started in 2019 you know the idea of I want a book agent to getting a book agent to you know my process sped up a little bit because of the fact that I, I met people and knew people in the business, in the industry. So that was a blessing in advance. But the journey starts 2019, summer 2019. I signed on a PS Literacy Agency. And then I spend two years fleshing out my idea, you know, and what I want to write about. And I've went through several journeys of trying to figure out what was it was going to be. Was it going to be a memoir? Was it going to be essays? Was it going to be all these things? And then I come to this, this, this realization that all of these different ideas I had, over time, circled around this topic of council culture. And what inspired me the most was an op-ed I did for the New York Times in 2019, talking about former President Barack Obama, who, you know, was having this interesting conversation about what he perceived to be council culture, and I disagreed with them. And that, you know, op-ed had gotten its own buzz in press and was referenced in so much other articles, because I kind of, I guess people said, okay, boomer to Obama, and that trajectory, I was like, there's got there's more to be said here. Um, there's more to talk about here." And thus, a book was born, And it was a process. It was a process, And I really have taken the time to savor and enjoy the journey. um the process of writing the book, the interviews. All of that stuff, you know, it was it was a wow. But to answer people's question, how did I do it? I work for myself and I tell people that that, you know, being my own, you know, I guess I, this sounds cliche, but being my own boss and, and running my own schedule and being in control of my own schedule allowed me to make the time to prioritize the things that matter to me. This podcast matters to me. Um, the writing I do for various publications matters to me. Being a husband being a big brother, um, being a son, those things matter to me. Being a professor, uh, being a mentor, being a nonprofit leader matters to me. Uh, Being an entrepreneur, being a best friend, those are the things that matter to me. And I think I'm happy to say this, being an author (laughs) matters to me. And you make the you make the time. You make the time. And so I'm one of those people that look at a day as being 24 hours. You have 24 hours in a day. And when you're able to control your schedule in that kind of way, you look at time based on carving it out for things, right? I sleep. I, I definitely sleep. Let me be clear. People say, do you sleep? I do sleep. I sleep. But I sleep like the way people, pe- different people work out. I, I don't... Have this like rigid like okay. You go to bed at this time. And you wake up at this time. It's more of I nap throughout the day, um, and then I have a nice solid continuous rest at night, midnight. So midnight, like not midnight, but in the you know maybe I guess it is midnight. But like I take naps in the middle of the day, um, and then I and I do take some time out at night to sleep but it's not like a straight eight hours of sleep for, but I'll take naps throughout the day periodically. And then I I sleep for about maybe a solid five hours in addition to that. So I get about, I try to get a third of my day is rest so I can recharge. Another third of my day is organizing and planning. Well, yeah, organizing, planning. And then the other Eight hours goes to four hours of intensive work on whatever I'm doing. And then the other four hours is reflection, decompressing, and de-stressing. I think that's how I break up my hours. So eight hours go to sleep. Eight hours go to strategy, planning, and organizing. Four hours go to intense, you know, undisturbed, focused work. And then the other four hours go to decompressing, relaxing, whatever. And that can mean going out to dinner with my friends. That can mean doing a happy hour. That can mean watching some TV. That's just mindless television. It can mean, you know, other things that I'm not going to discuss on this podcast. But there's various things that I can do in those four hours. And so I just, I think that's like the breakdown of like what I do. Some people will say, why is so much time invested in planning and things? Because to be honest, you can't get through anything if you don't know what's the future. So I take a lot of time dreaming or reflecting or really just taking that time to just think about what's next, looking at the the calendar ahead of me. Looking and strategizing on what's the new opportunities and plans that could be responding to emails that could be looking at my calendar, looking at what's next, looking at brainstorming new ideas because those other things you know, you have to take time out your schedule to do that. I, a lot of people don't. A lot of people just go 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 go, but they're just moving. I tell people if you're moving without direction, you're not going anywhere. You could be moving on a treadmill all day. And there might be that I, I, you know, treadmill. There's a direction, right? Because the direction is to, you know, burn calories, whatever. There's a direction there on that treadmill. But if you're not on a treadmill and you're going without a direction, then you're gonna get lost. So for me, I don't make moves without direction. I need an arrow. It needs to point me north. If you don't do that. <laughs> then you're just going to find yourself all over the place. And so I'm very big on planning. Now, let me be clear, you you know, plans and things can change, but you have to be in a space where you could be able to acknowledge or recognize when the change happens so you could redirect course. A lot of people are saying things are changing around them, but they hadn't even planned for what could happen in the event that said thing could change because they didn't have a plan before they moved. I don't move that way. I used to many, many years ago, to say, oh, whatever happens, what happened. No, uh-uh. Mm-mm. I have to, you know, somewhat be aligned, especially when you're in control of your business, when you're in control of your, your you know professional endeavors, where it's not in the hands of a corporation or an employer from somewhere else. You definitely have to take more time to strategize because. That's how you make your money. That's how you increase your livelihood. That's how you, you know, build your brand and everything else. So I definitely take a lot of time to invest in planning and investment um, in what's next. And, and there's different ways to do that. And and so that's been something that has definitely kept me, you know, um, but, but the time I've taken to write the book, you know, it was, it, it's no, there was no exercise in it. Like some people, you know, they're like, I have to write this many pages a day. I didn't do it like that. There were times where there were there were heavy, intensive writing weeks where it was just like, this is, I'm in the groove. I care about this chapter. I want to flesh this chapter out. There's so much research to be done. I'm in it. And then there were times where I'm like, I need to take two, two weeks to just marinate. I need to talk to friends. I'm going to experiment with some of my arguments. I make it in the book in real life. I'm going to you know, see how people think about stuff. I'm just going to observe. I'm going to consume the media that, that I'm thinking about. And, and then, then new ideas would sprout or new thoughts would sprout. And then that would inspire me to go back and then either, you know, revise some of the things I've been writing or, or increase or expand upon a new topic. But, you know, you have to make sure you're pacing yourself on your own deadlines. So I did make my own deadlines, but I didn't I didn't stick to a rigid, a rigorous, like set schedule. It was a, it was a, a organic process, but there were of course constraints because again, people want your draft, people want your manuscript. I'm working with a team. It's not by myself. And that's, that process was important to do. Um, but yeah, writing this was, was fun. Um, I did so many interviews. I did so much. I read so many things about oh, good so many books and things and so when people are asking me did you watch this tv show did you watch this i'm like no nah, girl i was <laughs> my friend amanda she'd be like have you watched the show I'm like i mean like i want to say girl i've been reading i've been writing a book honey i've been i've been reading this this other book i've been doing some other things <laughs> and i never I, I i don't know i'm never the type even though every, everyone's different you know i'm never the type to like be that person that like labors and pour onto my friends about every single thing I have to do. Um, you know, everybody's different. Like, I I, I I, know people who are like, every. you talk to their friend or, or somebody they know and they just tell you every single thing that they did in the day and how it's so tired and exhausting. I'm not that person. That's what I have a husband for, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just, you know, I, I don't complain. I'm not, I don't complain that much. I mean, I don't complain about myself. How about that? I do complain about things. <laughs> but I don't complain about myself. I'm, I'm I'm gentle on myself. I I think one of the things I've learned is to give myself just some grace and chill. The fuck? I am 30, writing a book, got a master's degree, healthy, alive, got a husband, got real friends. What am I complaining about? I, I don't, I'm not going to be, I, I just, one thing I've learned in my life, is the one thing I'm gonna do is protect my joy and protect myself. I will not beat myself up. I will not do it. That's something that I just learned from my mom and from other folks. But that's just like the one thing is don't don't drag yourself. Don't beat yourself up. That's like it's it's I treat people the I treat people the way I treat myself or has my Chloe said, treat me like I treat me, the song Treat Me So Cute. But it's like, she says, treat me like I treat me. I really do live by that. I I definitely do. I have to, I'm going to do everything to take care of myself um and 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 be well. And I treat people who are decent and respectful people. I treat them like that. Like I I I'm very um, considerate of, of folks and their, and their individual selves, and they you know unless they violate me or disrespect or whatever. But if they're regular, good, mean, well, meaningful people, I I treat people with the utmost consideration and respect, and and I tr- do that for myself first. There's people that will pour to other people and love other people, but they shit on themselves. I, I I you know that's a thing. I just I just won't do that to myself. I just refuse to. Because I have to live with myself to do the things I want to do. If I want to achieve certain goals or, or hit a certain level or whatever, how can I do that if I'm not rooting for myself? So people say, oh, you know, Ernest, you're going ham for your book. Yes, it's my fucking book. How can I stand for Taylor Swift and, and <laughs> or Beyonce <laughs> or any of these other folks, right? Not Bruno Mars, clearly. Like, how do I stand or, or, or be a cheerleader and, and go ham for other people's work, right? Their albums, their their movies and things like that. And I can't be that way for myself. That's weird. That's weird. I, I think, if anything, you should be going hard in the paint. The way you go hard in the paint for other people, you should be going that way for yourself and your friends. Period. And I'm grateful to have friends like that. I must say. I must say. You see people on social media, they friend dropping an album or a book or some project. If you're not going hard for your friends or yourself the way you do for these celebrities, something is wrong. So yes, 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 I'm going to go with him about the projects I do. And yes, my friends are going to get on your timelines and promote and hype up the stuff because we do it for everyone every day. You do it for politicians. You do it for other celebrities. And you don't even know those people. And those people don't even pour into you the same way that your friends or yourself should be pouring into you. So you better best believe that you go ham for your friends. You go ham for stuff. You do that. I do that for all of my friends. They have job promotions, new products, new opportunities. Yes, I'm going to stand for them. What the fuck? I I don't know what kind of friends y'all got out here. But there needs to be an intervention out here because that's what you're supposed to do. Everyone takes our time to have all these opinions and go here for these rappers and these basketball players all day on the timeline. But your friend got a book out and you not shout that out? Fake? fraud? <laughs> Fuck you doing? And I'm not talking about my people because my people, my people. But when I look at some of these other folks out here, it's interesting. It's, it, it's very telling and and it, it says a lot because then we say to these same people, well, you know, why did this not succeed or why did this didn't happen? Well, what did you do? And so I want to say to every person that listens to this podcast, who's been listening to it and supporting it and supporting what I do, thank you for standing. Thank you for supporting the stuff that I've been working on, especially this upcoming book. The fact that that book came in at number one on the new releases of a, of, of a bestsellers list of a book list on Amazon the first day on pre-sales alone. You got that book at number one and you haven't even read a chapter. Thank you for believing in the project. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for keeping it on the charts days after. Thank you for Believing in it and, and, and really doing it. There has not been a book tour yet. There has not been any media appearances yet. Off of the strength of, of just social media and word of mouth, the book is already doing numbers and people are hyped and people are are making an event of it. Thank you so much. Really. Seriously. Because that, every share, every shout out, every push made a difference. I was, I was very excited. I spent this whole past week building up anticipation. I got my nails done. I got new council nails, which are cute. I'm looking at them now as I'm talking to the mic. I did a lot of things to say, you know, how do I build up the hype? Um, my team at St. Martin's Press, the, the, the marketers there, they, was, they came through with the graphics. You know, I, I had an idea about what I want to do. I want to make an event out of this. The cover was released on Monday. The the pre-sale link and everything went out uh, Friday. We spent the entire week building up anticipation so that Friday was the big day. And everyone came through, pre-ordered a copy, bought multiple copies, told their friends, shared on social, and we got it on the charts. That is teamwork. That is, that's what standing looks like. Like in the in the best sense of like, you're saying to somebody that, you know what, it's this is something I'm excited about because I know this person. I've built a real connection. I just thank everybody for that because I see so many people over the years that will go out on a limb and either self-publish a book or do something. And I don't see the hype. I don't see the excitement. They're not as hype about it. They're they're scared to make that ask. Oh, I was not scared to make that ask because I don't ask for much. You know, I don't, I'm not, you know, there's some people out here, y'all know the grifters, who are oftentimes asking people every damn week to buy something or to buy this and to register for this. And I don't do that. I really don't. Most of the things I've put out in my entire career has been accessible and free. This is the first time, I think, as far as an individual thing that I possess, not for an organization, not for a nonprofit, not for a charity, but the one thing in my entire career that I have sold. And so it is, a it's. I want to say it's nerve wracking, but it is a, a different perception because you're asking for people to invest in something, even though right the book is what 28 bucks or whatever, but it's still money, right? You're asking for people to take a financial investment into something that you're doing. And to see people say that that use that that $27 you could have gotten something off of Uber Eats because that's what I've been doing. You could have used it to go to the movies because that's how much movie tickets cost nowadays. (laughs) Well with the popcorn and stuff. It used to be movie and and dinner Movie and dinner for a date. Now it's movie or dinner for a date, you know, because the, the movie tickets are high. You could have used that to buy all types of stuff. You could have got a haircut, a good haircut, because some of y'all out here playing with these haircuts. You could have got a real decent haircut. Um, You could have did a lot of things with that, that $27. But what you did was you said, I'm going to buy this book. I'm going to pre-order this book. This is important to me. And so I don't take that for granted at all because... Again, this is a choice, right? It's like when you sell something, when you're pushing something, you you it's a choice that people make. It's not a guarantee. It's not an expectation. Um, it's a dream. It's a desire. But people made it. You all made it. When you pre-ordered that book, uh, you made that decision. And so I, I'm grateful because there's so many other books out right now. Viola Davis got a great book out right now. I ordered her book. Um, But there's so many other things you could have done it with and you chose to do it. So I and you did it without even knowing what's in the book. That is humbling. That is makes me feel good. That's gratifying that you trust in the work. You've read my articles for over a decade, over a decade. Wow. You've followed this podcast. You've listened to things I've done in the past and you said, yeah, Yeah, I want to read this book. There's something here. And I promise you there is something there. And it's going to be fun. And for people who've asked, yes, I'm going to be doing book signings. Yes, I'm going to sign your book. Yes, I'm going to be doing media appearances. Yes, yes, yes. There's so much more coming. And everyone's kind of trying to sniff, sniff, sniff and figure it out. Listen, the good thing I'll say about this project is that There are so many people behind it. There's so much other stuff happening behind the scenes that I cannot disclose. But I promise you that the simplest things you're asking for is literally at the level, the easiest accessible level ever. So will I sign your book? Will I talk about the book? Will I do interviews about the book? Yes, yes, yes. I'll do all of those things and more. There's so much more coming and we have like a countdown. We're less than 10 months away from the book's release. So there's stuff building upon build. It's called a, it's called Momentum. This is the first big, huge punch in the door. But between now and February of 2023, there's more to come. There's more surprises. There's cool merch. I already have some merch coming and things. There's lots of stuff coming down the pipeline. So just stay tuned. I can't wait. And thank you in advance. And keep buying. Keep buying copies. Keep telling friends about it. Because the importance about pre-sales, and I want to make sure I add this in, (laughs) is that all of the pre-sales, right, all of those copies that were bought on Friday and over the weekend and now, they are all going to be counted towards the first week of sales. That's a big deal. So when you think about artists like Taylor Swift, right? Uh, well, at least lately she's been selling albums and just dropping them people. So she hasn't done pre-sales, but I'll give you another example. Uh, Lizzo, Lizzo has a new album coming out. Her, her sophomore album comes out in July. Pre-sales are already open for it now. She's got a wide window. I think the album's called special. Um, all of those pre-sale orders, right? If you buy the, if you order the album, pay for it now, pre-order, whatever, all of those sales are going to count towards the first week um when it debuts so there is a strong likelihood that lizzo's album will most likely top the billboard uh 200 it's going to be 200 albums so it's the billboard 200 that is the list of all the top 200 albums um selling albums she's going to land at most likely number one or in the top three unless somebody else's album a bigger artist um drops like if Drake comes out of the out of nowhere with an album that might hurt her but I would say that week is clear for Lizzo if it is Lizzo is definitely going to be number one or she's going to get in the at least the top five guaranteed because the sales would have built over time so all her fans and people are going to buy 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 so my goal is I mean a dream of mine would be to build a New York Times bestsellers list it's a dream I'm speaking it into existence I would love to be on that list. I think there's a chance that I can. And so what I would do is building up the anticipation, building up these pre-sales will help lead to that, could help that maybe the first week or build momentum and things, but there's so much, but this is a good first step. And to see it getting traction on Amazon means there is buying power there, there is interest there, but you, you know, as we get closer to then, they'll be, you know, going to bookstores and people buying physical copies and autographic copies are coming and, and and I love it. So just thank you, and it's just so much more in store. And and the thing is, is that we act like, you know, nine point something months is a long time, but time is going by fast. We're already in May, y'all. Like I just taught my first semester as an adjunct professor, like. At Cheney. Like, my students, I've done. They're getting their finder, sending in their final papers to me next week. But I'm done teaching. I've taught my first semester of college. Again, how did I make time to do that? Oh, my goodness. But it's done. That's exciting to me. Like, it's, like, done for the first semester. And will I be back in the fall? Who knows? No, I'm joking. I'm going to probably most likely be back in the fall. But that's the thing. I, I did it. I taught students the end of the world did not come. The sky did not fall. And I was able to, you know, make an impact. So, yeah, time goes fast. It was just like yesterday I was starting. And now I'm like a semester in. I feel a little bit like a pro. You know, I'm like, look at that. Wow. So, you know, I will be, we'll be in February sooner than later. And everything in between. So stay tuned. There'll be some cool swag merch and things coming with the book. I'm just super excited about it. And I just could not wait to tell you all like, you know, how much that was. Yeah, this week has been such a really great weekend. And um, just so elated by all the enthusiasm and the hype and the great chatter and a good talk. And you all saw, I'll tell you one cool little, little one cool hint. So... If you've been looking online at the book section of comments and early reviews and things, those are people who, a lot of the people you see in there, I interviewed them for this book. They're going to be in the book. That's the one cool thing I'll tell you. That is a podcast exclusive. I haven't said it anywhere outside the podcast. But the people that you see giving comments and quotes for the book and the marketing, those individuals are in the book. Like I've interviewed them; they've contributed to the book in some way to tell their, their stories or you know or, or give their um, feedback or thoughts about issues. They were interviewed for the book. Th- that's one cool thing I'll tell you. Another cool thing I'll say is that so many people ask me this. Look, for for this, for you know, I have a lot of people working with me. I have a um, a speaking agent that books me for speaking engagements. Uh, I'm with Collective Speakers. So my speaking agent is that team. They book me for speaking engagements, gigs, things of that nature. I also have my um, literary agent who, you know, helped me get this book deal and, you know, is helping with my book career in general. Then I have within the publishing group that's publishing this book, I have a publicist that will be representing the book itself, the actual book. And I have two people in marketing that is helping to the marketing book uh, and, and help me with promotions and things of that nature. So there's a whole team. So what's good about that is that I have to work with everybody to make sure that this is the most successful experience ever. It's great. It's not me doing all of that work. Normally, I work independently, so with the podcast, that's all me. Self-promoted, self-produced, all of that. That's all me. But this is different. And so when people ask me all these questions, I have to be close lip about it because I'm working with a group and there's a plan and there's a rollout. So a lot of times there's people in the, in the comments like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you going to do? I can't answer that. Love you all, but I can't answer it. I have to be honest, full disclosure. I can't answer it. Um, but what I will say is that all of the things that's been asked and said—they are—they're—they're—they're they, not—they're not only in your heads. You know, they're—they're they're naturally things that have been discussed or considered. And you'll wait and see what happens. And that's all I can say. So I just want to put that disclosure out there. But yes, moving along. Um, So I wrote an op-ed for Philadelphia Magazine, of course. Love Philly Mag. There's a great piece I actually have coming out in the June issue. Yes, I'm going to be in the print magazine um, with a really good, juicy uh, piece. Won't talk about it yet because I want to see some things come through. But I am going to be in the June issue physical copy um, about a really great topic that has, you know, that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how people receive it. Um, but it's gonna be fun and we'll definitely be talking about it in the podcast. But this week I wrote about keeping the damn mask on and wearing my mask, and it's interesting. I don't know why people give a fuck about people who want to wear their masks. Like I don't know what plan I guess I shouldn't be shocked, and I'm not shocked here. I am annoyed. Um I wrote about just saying that you know, I've had some people around me that have lost their covert virginity. Um, they've gotten COVID and they haven't had COVID this entire pandemic and then they suddenly gotten it. And they're doing fine because this is a boosted community. This is a boosted circle. We believe mm-hmm. in vaccinations and being boosted. So people are only having mild symptoms, which is desirable, right? Like COVID is serious, but they they've they've been able to weather it, which is a blessing. The thing is, is that I, even though the city has dropped the mask mandate, I'm still keeping the mask on. And 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 the reality is is that there's some people who will say, Well, oh, you, you know, you didn't have a mask on. This, 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 you don't get it. Mask culture is not about wearing a mask on your face 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It means having the discretion, discernment to keep a mask on in certain environments and not just believing that just because the city says, you know, we don't need to wear masks, well, you know that some of those decisions are political. Like, I'm I'm not going to hold you. I think that there has been so much capitalism and gross corporate influencing around these policies that it's like, are you making the right decision on behalf of public health or is pressure from corporations and companies and businesses got you all doing this based on politics? And I just feel like if you put up a mask mandate and you tell people that, you know, the, the cases are going up, you don't turn around a couple of days later and say, OK, we're going to drop it because cases are going. Cases don't go down that fast. And at least you should have just kept it for the two weeks or whatever you said you was going to do regardless of how are these businesses felt. So at some point you realize, you know what, there is a lot of people really dumbing down to to keep the peace, whatever the fuck that means. I, I, I just think that there are, some, there are some things bigger than, you know, folks complaining. And so we're going to let idiots uh, determine the outcome of our future and our public health and safety? Absolutely not. So I wrote this piece for a lot of people outside of myself that resonates with the understanding of, you know what, fuck that mandate. I'm going to still keep a mask on because I still see people around me getting COVID. I'm looking at these numbers and they are going up. There are, the cases are going up. You know, um, it may not, they, they keep saying, oh, it's not going up compared to the previous week, whatever. You know, listen, it's, it's de- it depends on the area that you're in. There are some COVID hotspots And there are some that aren't. But the reality is, is we're not out of this pandemic. And when Dr. Fauci said we're out of the pandemic zone or whatever he was describing, he was saying that, yes, we're not in that massive pandemic mode that we were in. But he didn't say, oh, the pandemic is over. He said, we're just out of that major phase, right, of lockdown. That lockdown phase, we are not in that. But there is still a reality That, listen, I'm going to wear the mask. And see, the crazy part is, is that the people who are naysayers or whiners, I'm just like, what happened to your fucking misappropriation of my body, my choice? Which, by the way, was never a conversation about masks. It was about. Women and birth and, 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 and birth control and reproductive rights. That's what it fucking meant. It wasn't about some idiot that didn't want to wear a mask at a football game because, you know, they were trying to rebel against it. So it's weird to me that there's so much animosity for people that decide to still wear a mask. If it's my body, my choice, then you shouldn't care what another person is doing with their fucking body. Um, to me, I do think that when it comes to public health and safety if you're on the offense against public health then yeah, that's a problem. But why are we mad at people that want to wear masks? That's stupid. Like, I mean, there's more to say about folks who choose not to wear masks in very contagious hotspots. That's risky not just for the person who doesn't wear the mask but for others who might be immune compromised. That's another conversation for another day. My whole thing is I put up that I'm wearing a mask and people in the comments of, of the Instagram post of Philly Mag are just getting angry and having the most to say. I'm like, why are you mad about me wanting to wear a mask? If you don't want to wear a mask, girl, then don't wear the mask. If you don't want a mask, sir, don't wear the mask. Period. That's your business. But I was writing a piece that was trying to create, which it did succeed on. There were people who were like, hell yeah, me too. I'm going to wear my mask because, listen, these mandates are wild. Like, let's keep it 100. At the end of the day, do I die too much that folks who just choose to have it. Like, there's this people who spend their day being mad at folks that's protecting their own health. And it's like, you got what you wanted. The city doesn't have mask mandates. Now go off and, and do you what you can and roll the dice and hopefully you don't get COVID. That is your prerogative. Don't want to wear a mask? Fine. Cool. Don't do it. But for people who still want to and say they are, why is it your business? And a lot of you people tolerate these people. I don't. I'm so tired of, this is random, but not really. But I'm so tired of white people who get caught up in this this obsession with telling everybody how they have the most racist family members or the most wacko folks. What are you doing with those people? What are you doing with them? Because I'm tired of (laughs) confronting them. What are you doing with them? Because you can't run hot up under me. Stop hiding other black people. Stop hiding other black women and, and, and black queer people who have to oftentimes confront these things on a daily basis. Stop running under us as inspiration and light for your shit. No, you you go learn how to walk quietly and carry a big stick and whack them um, verbally, not physically. Violence is not the answer. But <laughs> but like no, seriously, you go confront those people with words. And rejection, and use the sermon, and condemn out loud. Don't condemn in front of your black friends. Condemn the people in their face, and don't run either. Work passionately to stop them from harming other folks. Because that bigot that you just ran away from, they become someone else's problem. They become some someone like my problem, or someone else. They become little Kyle Rittenhouses that run around and troll people that's what happens. Because somebody like a Kyle Rittenhouse didn't get checked when he was little. You know, people like that don't wake up one day and choose to just be a troll or be a problem or to be all the things. They they don't just wake up one day and do that. They've been doing things. They've been having problematic views and there've been people around them that just stay silent or turn the other way. That was a problem because that's how you get the issues you get from people like that. I don't want to hear it that that you knew this racist or that you knew this bigot. I don't I don't care about your fun fact cards about how you knew this person, you went to school with this person, or you was cool with this person, or you once knew this person. What did you do? What did you do when you saw that white supremacist? What did you do when you saw that 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 neo Nazi? What did you do with with those people? Oh, you just thought it was a cool story, bro. You thought it was a cool story, says okay. You know, like, I, 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 I'm I, very turned off when people, especially white people tell their stories of, oh, I know this person. I know this person. They were so amazed. I'm so happy I don't talk to them anymore. Well, great. You just let them sick like a dog, run off. You didn't stop them in their tracks. When I was in college, I confronted a lot of racist people, a lot of homophobic people, and I let them have it on site the day of. I didn't wait. I wasn't quiet. When there was a party on my campus at Penn, there was a a group of people wearing blackface and they were doing um what else they were doing? They were it was a West Philly born and raised party. And they were wearing, they were white people basically mocking black people and 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 making stereotypes and, and wearing chains and it was a lot of problematic shit. Very racist. And you think about like Dear White People, the movie where they talk about that party where these people is wearing froze and doing all this stuff. That was the same thing that happened on Penn's campus, the whole story. I wrote about this many, many, this happened like 2014, my senior year, my final semester. And I called it out. And I put it out there in front of the street. I said, this is what's happening. These people are doing this, blah, 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 blah. It was, it was a lot. It was a whole, so I think it was a sorority that threw the party. Or they collaborated with the fraternity. And they were white. And they was just doing this. And it was very problematic. And a lot of people were trying to defend it. And act like, oh, well, this is this. No. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not okay. I didn't need a black square or Instagram. I didn't need, you know, sensitivity training. It just was not the fuck okay. And I called it out. And a couple of people follow suit, but I remember back then everything was the word racially insensitive. No one wanted to call something racist. It was racially insensitive, and 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 the, and, and the institutions that be a lot of times want to protect these kids and say, "Oh, it's a careless mistake." How do you make mistakes like that? How do you how do you mistake racism? Like how do you wake up and choose to do these problematic things and just say, "Oh, you know, uh, it was it was a mistake. It was not a mistake. You did it on purpose." Why they didn't say it's a mistake? How about you fucking apologize? Why happened to people just apologizing? You know. Especially when it's like obvious what, what it is. And um, I've seen that stuff happen. And now I look and I see some of the things that happen today. Just the stuff that goes on. And I'm like, you were one of those people. Who hung out with those people? You you went to those frat parties. You you thought those people were cool, and now they're out here running Fortune five hundred companies. Now they're Elon Musk, (laughs) you know. Now they're you know the Trumps. Now they're these other people, and and people understand. These people don't don't wake up one day and choose this. They've been like this their entire lives. And there's many people that hung out with them, socialized with them, that never checked them, that now want to come to people like myself and others and tell us about these people like it's our job to do it. No, you go do it. You go do it. This is what we mean by stepping up, showing up, showing out, speaking out. That's what we meant by that. Hmm. And then they say they're not a part of the problem. Oh, yes. So moving along to this primary. We're in May. The primary is on May 17th. I'm super excited. It's like two weeks and some change. And this is going to be fucking over. I cannot wait. When I tell you all that this primary season has got it on my last nerves. Oh, my goodness. Let it be done. L- lose already some of these people lose just lose already just lose the supporters are more annoying than the candidates the candidates are starting to mimic the the, the supporters it's become a shit show the mudslinging, the poll tricking the lying the whining it's just bad across the board it's just bad form it's just bad and the crazy part is some of these people when they lose this primary they're going to never be the same to the public there are some people that I will, pro- I promise you, there are some elected officials or candidates or incumbents of people that I will never look at the same again after this process. There are some people that I will never look at the same again. I, I will not budge on when I tell you there's some people I'm like, wow, you showed your whole ass. Oh, my goodness. You're a total tool. Oh, my goodness. You're an opportunist. Like there's some people I just will never. It's just so much so let's let's talk about some of the dumbest shit that's happened this week um first of all, Connor lamb you know, in the very beginning of this election or this primary season, I had nothing much to say about Connor lamb um I was observing I said, you know, hey, this guy has beat some 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 um he's beat." some Trump folks that was back. He won his congressional seat. I thought beginning, I said, this is good that we have someone in Congress that have that congressional seat in that area. You know, Congress should stay in that seat and really, you know, do what needs to be done. He decided to run for the Senate. And I was like, okay, well, who else is running? Um And then Fetterman and Malcolm Kenyatta. And I was just like, oh, you know, ugh, I don't know about that, you know, because I I see... I understood why Fetterman, um, was leaving, right? Because his term is up as lieutenant governor. Austin Davis is, is who, who I think many of us hope will be the next lieutenant governor. He'll be the first black lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania history. And of course, he was a special guest on Ernesty Speaking, he made history as the first elected official to ever be a guest on Ernesty Speaking. And then John Fetterman became the first white person to ever be on, earnestly <laughs> speaking, and also the second elected official ever. Um, I don't, you know, listen. I don't bring elected officials on all the time, clearly. But this was, the, you know, with a primary this important. I said to myself, I have to do something to to get people to talk about the races and also just just be more engaged. And and again, anything can happen between now and May seventeenth, the way this election is going. But you know, you know, Connor has ran a very negative campaign. Um, the, the attack ads from the super PACs that he doesn't want to, I've seen in debates, he's kind of, last debate they did that was televised, he's kind of, you know, skimmy past it. um There's not much conversation. He hasn't really made much of a case for himself outside this whole thing of he can win based on the fact that he's beat to whatever, but he's never ran a statewide race. And that's the thing. Like, John Fetterman is the only candidate in this race that's ran statewide. Malcolm has ran and won in a city like Philadelphia, which is a big vote getter. Connor has won in rural areas. But I don't know what's going to happen in Pennsylvania outside of what these poll numbers show, but also what the conversations are. And there's been some interesting things that's happened. So I want to update you all as listeners on what's been going on. So the first thing is, is that the fifth ward In Philadelphia, the fifth ward is a big ward. It's a very popular ward. It's a diverse group of voters, progressives, liberals, all types of folks in that that ward. They decided that they were not going to make an endorsement outright for a Senate candidate. That's a pretty big damn deal because what that says is that they're undecided across the board on who they want to back. And that, you know, what I keep telling people is that for the establishment and for the, you know, Democratic Party as an institution, they've been running in this, which is interesting because you have two progressive candidates. You have a moderate. Kyle Lamb is a moderate. Malcolm, I guess, is a progressive in this race um, and, and Fetterman is a progressive, arguably. Right. They're all progressives, except for Kyle Lamb. Interesting enough. You know, there was supposed to be, or at least I expected, and I think you all remember very early in this podcast, because there's a lot of people that's out here listening to bits and snippets and little things and tidbits and doing some bad edit jobs on this on my episodes. But thank you for listening, though. I, it's, they're not following what I've been saying at the very top of the year. They come in, they have their own opinions, they're mad. These K-Hivers and their supporters, it's wild. The, the k hiver Twitter is probably one of the most annoying Um, groups next to white supremacists and neo-Nazis on Twitter. They are ridiculously um, deprived of nuance, of understanding. I mean, yes, I don't know how they converted into being a moderate hive because initially the K-Hive was like focused on Kamala Harris and to a degree they was doxing people, harassing people. There's tons of articles about the stuff they were doing and they were standing for a political figure. I've been harassed by the K-Hive for having opinions about Kamala Harris that was not in favor of her. Vice President Kamala Harris, to be clear, before any of them say, "Oh, you didn't name Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, they were upset about how I was critical of the VP. A lot of my criticism was before she was elected to office uh, because her, you know, her agenda, her platform and some of the things that was happening. But for journalists and, and political commentators, we, you know, like us, you can't cherry select critique. So I was critical of the majority of these candidates. I was critical of Biden. I was critical of Andrew Yang. I was critical about all these different candidates. But they just only looked at Kamala because that's who they stand for. So they would frame everything like, oh, people were attacking Kamala when they didn't realize, no, actually some of us were critical of all the candidates and were critical of, of, of front runners or people who, who seemed to be having a, a stronger chance and was looking at them as a whole. You wouldn't know that based on the way that they curated their tunnel vision. With your focus zero in on one person, you could ignore everything else in the trees in the forest, which is kind of what has happened with social media is that people are taking the, the you know, confirmation bias as people choosing to zero in on one thing that they want to see and not look at everything as a whole. And that's what's happened. But what do I know? I'm writing a book about cancel culture. What do I know about this? Um, so we see this happen a lot with this K-Hive. Um, and these in this Stan culture, these obsessive stalker fans, Stan, as in the reference to the song Stan by Eminem, which Eminem, of course, you know, back in the early 2000s, a song called Stan, which is, you know, it was about uh Elton John. For those who uh you know remember this era, you know, Eminem had a lot of controversy being homophobic in his lyrics. Um, at the Grammys, he performed a song with Elton John. The song was Stan, which is a man named Stan who was a super fan that, you know, was the, that's that controversial video where the fan is writing Eminem letters and he's he's obsessed with Eminem, he's bleaching his hair to the point where he drives his car over a bridge and kills himself and his wife. Yes, it's completely traumatic. Content warning. If you're not into that, don't watch the video. It's too much. But Eminem videos were wild as fuck. Music videos back in the day were wild as fuck, but that is a lot. So that's where Stan came from, is the man Stan who was just like a diehard crazy fan in a way that was violent and crazy and ridiculous. Also, people thought Stan meant stalker fan because of the word Stan's to stalk with the fan. So people think stalker fan. But but Stan is originally from the Eminem song Stan. Listen to the song. If you don't want to see the video, it's a lot going on. That's where Stan came from. These people are like that for Kamala, for Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, I think the Barbs, the Nicki Minaj fans, um, the barbs, they call themselves also crazy. I remember the monsters for little, for, 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 Lady Gaga. They don't have as much prowess on social media. You know why? Because those people grew the fuck up. I don't know what Nikki is doing, but Nikki seems to have grown ass people that will not grow up. Like there's, I mean, there's the beehives, you know, Beyonce fans, but a lot of them are growing up. A lot of them, you know, and Beyonce's not really on Twitter. So I think a lot of them have grown up, but those barbs. For whatever reason, Nicki has not grown up with her fans and her fans have not grown up either. So they're all like still doing things they did like 10 years ago. And that's weird and bizarre and creepy. And it's also just like, what? Um, But there are internet, you know, I mean, I get some of the younger artists like BTS has a, a strong stand culture of, of fans. But BTS is also an international boy band that's very popular right now. Um I just don't get... Like Nikki's fans over the years, like you're you're in your 30s now. Most of us, when we started listening to Nikki, we were in our teens, early 20s. You know, I was like around 18. I was well, I was like 17 in high school when when um, Beat Me Up Scotty her mixtape came out. So I was the original. We were original fans at the time. I'm not as much as a fan of Nikki now, but just to see how over the years people are just, it's just wow. It's wild. But nonetheless, stand culture exists on the internet. And so, what has happened with Connor Lamb is that a lot of these K hivers have now become not just crazy about Kamala, but crazy about any establishment or moderate picks. They don't live in the state or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. A lot of them, they're just pressed about keeping a certain type of politician in office. And they're now badgering and trolling voters and locals in these areas around their races. So I've been studying this for a minute on Twitter for the past several months, this culture, this online stand culture. And it's it's come with some crazy folks doing some crazy things. But I've noticed this pattern of these people. Um, and I, I question a lot of it. Like, are they paid? Are they boxed? It's a combination of all types of personas. There's some people that's like, Legitly obsessed with these politics. They think they, they are there. But I, I just question that because I don't know how many regular, everyday people that are not journalists, that are not political consultants, they're not campaign people that can spend all day on social media pushing political talking points and rhetoric of certain candidates. I don't think those people are regular people unless you're clout chasing or you don't have a life or you're bored. It just does not make sense to me that there are people online doing this unless there is some invested interest or you're just an obsessive stand. It doesn't make sense. It's unhealthy. Like as a journalist, I'm on Twitter because that's how I am able to get news, share news or whatever. I get paid to do this work. If I was not getting paid to do this work, I would be like my husband. I would be like a lot of my friends that use these platforms sparingly, you know, or use it for stuff like talking about their dog or going out to dinner or getting drinks, but never spending endless hours, like using your account, like your profile to spend time obsessing over a subset of political candidates. That is weird to me especially if you're not getting paid, especially if you're not an influencer, especially that, like, that's weird. And there are some weird people on the internet that are, like, building their whole reputation off of being a part of a cult of these types of followers. And I've seen it. And some of y'all might have seen it too. And I'm sitting here and I'm just like, so this is what you do all day? You work for a healthcare company? You work for a school, you teach, you do all these things, but then you have this secret lifestyle of like doxing and trolling and harassing people who don't support a particular political candidate outside of your state. It's weird. It's weird. And that energy has been meddled in this current U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania. There are some people across the board, but I really feel like a kind of Lamb. You know because there are stands for Malcolm, there are stands for Fetterman. But there are some wild stands coming for for supporting Conor Lamb and how they go about it. And the campaign has really taken an ugly turn. Um initially I just thought Conor Lamb was a little boring. I said hey this guy's a, you know he's so he's super safe he's color in the in the you know color in the dots color in the margins that was like his vibe. That's how I've read him but what I've seen over time is this weird shift. And there are people that say that it's his brother. He has a brother named Coleman Lamb, which you can Google and look up. You can check him on Twitter. But they're saying his brother is behind a lot of the negativity on, on of his campaign, shifting the focus. But I don't blame siblings. Your campaign is your campaign. You're supposed to run your campaign the way you're supposed to run it. And I look at that Twitter account I look at the way that Kyler posts and how he acts in real life. The Twitter persona and who he is on debate stages and in real life don't match. Something's weird. His supporters don't match the type of person that he tries to portray himself in real life. And so something's going on with that campaign. Um, I feel like there's some other hands, some evil forces behind some of the aspects of the campaign. Um, and, and it's weird because the way that he, has conducted himself to voters and different groups of people, it's like, why are you running a campaign like this? And why are your supporters acting like this? And and what is that to say about your true intentions with the seat and what it represents? It's just some things happening there that just does not sit well with me. It's my opinion. And too often, we are not allowed to have fair critiques or opinions without people insinuating a mass conspiracy. It's very Trumpian. Um, And there's a lot of people doing those things. You know, people have said that I'm a John Fetterman plant. The fuck? I have not gotten a damn check or anything. Uh, Do I think he's the better candidate right now? Well, the polls agree with me. Um, I think that he's currently the better candidate. I think he's the front runner for this seat. I think that the money, the contributions, the campaign contributions, the polls he's gotten shows that. I think that his campaign has a broad appeal to different voters. I also think, and this is what I've told other people, is that when you look at this ticket in Pennsylvania, to me, the case for John Fetterman is when you look at the three, the two people who's going to be on his Democratic ticket. If we're assuming um, that Josh Shapiro wins governor and that Austin Davis wins lieutenant governor, which I believe he will, and then you you get Fetterman, you got three different types of Democrats that's going to bring different people out to the polls. I don't know why there is this narrative, which there's a, there's a lot of dumb, illogical thoughts about Black voters from people who don't live in Pennsylvania. And so I'm here to educate people and shut down some myths because we're, we're like 17 days away. We're, we're about two weeks away from this, this primary. L- let me break this down. When you have a diverse coalition of different types of Democrats running on a ticket, that brings out a higher voter turnout because different people will go to the polls based on the enthusiasm of a candidate that represents them. Black voters are going to go to the polls to vote Democrat and they're gonna to go to the polls to support a person like Austin Davis that is going to bring people to the polls. Josh Shapiro is going to bring out moderates and other people who want that type of politician in office. John Fetterman is going to bring people out to the polls to vote for Josh and for Austin because people are going to vote straight. No one's going to go cherry picking around and say, I'm going to vote for this, this, that. That's not how this works. If you go to the polls and you are voting Democrat across the line, you're going to vote across the line. That's just what's going to happen. And so all three of them are going to bring out a different base of voters. Fetterman is going to bring out folks that are pretty much diverse and and very much anti-establishment, but want to see change in Washington. He's bringing out folks like that. And those people are going to go to the polls and they're not just going to say, OK, I'm clicking for John Fetterman. I'm out. They're going to say, you know what? A lot of them will be open to vote for everybody else because they're not trying to have Republicans in office. So they'll say, you know what? I'll bite the bullet and I'll vote for Josh Shapiro and Austin Davis as long because I see Feterman on the ballot. There are some people that will see Austin Davis and say, you know what? I want the first black lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania history. I'm going to support this brother. I'm going to show up to the polls. Black voters will go to the polls in Pennsylvania to support Austin Davis. And You know what's going to happen? They're going to go to the polls and vote for him. They're going to say, you know what? Who's his running mate? Josh Shapiro. We got to elect Josh Shapiro. Who's this man for the U.S. Senate? We're going to vote for him for U.S. Senate. They're going to vote across the board. No one ever goes to polls and think about one person above the other. That is why Joe Biden had Kamala Harris as his running mate. Because black women, right? black voters in general, right? and diverse coalitions of people were excited to see a woman be the potential vice president of the United States. So people who wasn't crazy about Biden were like, you know what? I'm going to show up for Kamala. So they showed up for Kamala and they of course gave their vote to Biden. Me, I was giving my vote to any Democrat that was going to get that primary because quite frankly, I don't have all that selective amnesia. I'm like, look, if Kamala had it, she was going to get my vote. If Joe got it, they were going to get my vote. Primaries is where you vote for who you love and in general is when you fucking vote on the line. So all these people that's running around here saying, oh, black voters will not go to the polls after these negative ads about Fetterman and this from the Republicans, we have seen worse. We have seen worse. There was negative attacks on Hillary. There was negative attacks on, on, Bur- on, 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 on Biden. We have seen it all. Stop it. Stop talking about black voters like one thing. Right, We we have learned how to deal with complex elected officials, those who've done problematic things and those who've been lied on of doing problematic things. We have shown up in numbers. Stop bringing black voters in this conversation. Stop manipulating how we vote. You don't know how we get down, okay? One would argue that... Hillary in 2016, had she gotten a more diverse running mate at that time, maybe the polls would have been different. I argue that if Kamala would have had a black man be her vice presidential candidate, and she would have had a Patrick Duvall or somebody like that as her VP rather than that, that Tim guy, she would have probably gotten a different level of enthusiasm and excitement. Who knows? But at the end of the day, one could also argue she did win the election and she did pretty do good. They cheated, right? She had the popular vote. She had the votes. So it looked like there was real Russian collision there. So one could argue that they just cheated. With Biden, I guess he didn't blew them out the fucking water. He beat Trump. They still kind of, they still trying to claim cheating. So to me, let's stop acting like this midterm election is going to be On black voters. Black voters are going to show up and do what they're going to do. Because at the end of the day, these issues are bigger than one fucking candidate. If John Fetterman wins the primary, he will win the general election and it will be because of a wide coalition. Because I'm trying to figure out who's not going to the polls for him. Who's not going to go to the polls for him in, in, in the general? Who's not? Who's going to really be... So convinced that the Republican that's gonna get it, like Doctor Oz, is gonna really sway Black voters not to show to the polls. That is a dumb ass talking point. I just have to say that because I've heard it around, and I'm like, I've never heard this. This doesn't make any sense. Who is every every person, every Black person I've spoken with throughout this entire primary? Okay, at barbershops, churches, and everywhere else covering this race. I have said to them, "How are you voting at the midterms?" They said, "Whoever is on the bet, on the ticket, they're gonna vote for them. They don't care." At this point, Biden's election proved to us that we cannot not afford to not go to the polls and vote, because whoever the fuck it is is going to be better than anybody that's coming from the side of the of the far right. No one's voting for a Trump endorsed candidate from the Democratic Party. And those who want to come to the polls with everything going on right now is getting more people amped up to say, you know what? We've got to go to the midterms and we got to vote. So all of this, this person going to turn people away. No, it, that, that, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. And I honestly think that there's a stronger coalition with these three, Shapiro, Davis, and Federman. Everybody gets a piece of whatever they want in that Democratic pie. The, the progressives get their progressive pick. The, the moderates get their moderate pick. And, and diverse voters get their diverse pick. Everybody gets something in that pie. You put Conor Lamb in there and it's the it's like you're getting Shapiro and Con- You're getting two of the same. Where is the bold progressive in that damn ticket? Where are they? I'll wait. They're not there. There's no enthusiasm. There's no enthusiasm, right? You, you put Malcolm King out of there, which he's not gonna win. But like let's just say you got two, you got two black candidates, they're saying the same things. They're, they're, they're not the same, in my opinion, when it comes to work achieved and accomplishments, but they're pretty much the same. Where where are you gonna get new ground? You put Fedement in there, there's another core set of voters. That would have never voted for Shapiro or Austin Davis if it was a different type of race. But now they're going to go to the polls and look at them as a total package. It's about the package, y'all. It's about the toll ticket. So for me, I find Fetterman to be more useful when you're looking at the coalition. The trio of them together is strong, but they can't win by themselves. They have to win as a unit. That's how I look at the map. That's how I look at the strategy. The strategy isn't, oh, well, if Fetterman is running without any coalition of support of Josh Shapiro, Austin Davis, and the president or anybody else's support, then it just looks like he's a nomad. And yes, he could lose. Or, but but then if you look at Josh Shapiro by himself running just as governor without the coalition behind him, he could lose this race. Pennsylvania is is, is a very wild state you cannot compare it to other states in the United States. You can't you can't we're weird. We're weird like that. We're we're weird where we live in a in a in a state where Obama, a black man, won overwhelmingly and got overwhelmingly more votes than Biden did for president. But this is the same state that after Obama was president went rare for Trump. Pennsylvania, you cannot, you, you the voters are just different here. You can't compare this state to any other state. So for all these outsiders, these K-Hivers, these Twitter trolls, these other folks, talk your shit. But understand that it's never going to seep in with voters that live in this area because this is a different terrain. Period. So you can spend time trying to act like it's going to be the doomsday, but the the voters here, it's a different type of swagger, a different type of energy and enthusiasm that needs to happen to get people to the polls. And it don't make sense anywhere else. I get it. I get it. In other states, there's a linear way. Either it's all establishment or all anti-establishment. It's either total progressive or no progressive. This is a city, and this is a state, right, that likes to cherry pick. Even Philadelphia, right? Philly, with our local politics, we will pick the most staunch moderate, but then we'll turn around and then we'll pick the most crazy progressive. That's how you got a Larry Krasner, and that's how you get someone like a... You know, in Center City, Center City people will vote for Larry Krasner, right, as their DA, but then we'll turn around and elect someone like Mark Squilla, Okay, who's who 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 doesn't like Indigenous Day and want to keep a Columbus Day as their representative in City Council? Like that's how weird we vote in this state on the local and the statewide level. It's just how we vote. And it doesn't make sense to other people because they just don't get it. But in Philly, this is a town and even voters across Pennsylvania that will elect a guy like John Fetterman and then turn around and want to Josh Shapiro for, for governor. Even with, with Wolf, right? Governor Todd Wolf was the was a rich man that was very well put together, well mannered in a suit. People voted for him for governor and then Lieutenant Governor they voted for Fetterman. Like two opposites, night and day. That's just how we are. So you can't compare us. You can't compare it. And and I really want people to take that to heart. So back to this crazy endorsement. The Fifth Ward had decided not to make an endorsement for... Uh, None of the candidates, which, as I said before, is on trend with everything else that's happening. They decided they were not going to make an endorsement in this race. Okay, wonderful. What happened, though, is that Conor Lamb on Twitter earlier this week had posted that he was endorsed. He was voted and endorsed by the Fifth Ward. It was a huge controversy because many of those committee members who are part of the Fifth Ward got under his Twitter Okay, under that post, it said, nope, that's not what happened. You did not get that endorsement. That's not true. We didn't make an endorsement. It was a lot of fact checking. But after several hours of back and forth, the Inquirer, Billy Penn, uh, City and State PA, uh, other publications across the state and in the city of Philadelphia, ran stories saying, hey, we found out what happened. He didn't get endorsed. So what happened was, what had happened was... Is that the ward leader, the fifth, of the fifth ward? Um, basically, his name is Mike Boyle. He contacted Connor Lamb's camp and told him that there were divisions within the ward that were, uh, largely supporting him, Connor Lamb, and pretty much was asking for street money, asking for a donation, translation street money. So wards get money with that money, they use it to get people to get out the vote, they get endorsements. If they get endorsements, if they make an endorsement, then they create their own ballot, which they did give out to voters that live in that ward. And so when they go to the polls, people are going to supposed to supposedly going to read that ballot and vote. I mean, there's some influence there, but money in politics, but you don't get to do that unless there's money. So campaigns will give wards money to push. And if there's open wards, that means that the, the committee people of those divisions within that ward have to come to a consensus of who they want to support. In this situation, there were divisions that the majority of divisions did support Connor Lamb, but there were some who supported Federman and Malcolm. But the issue was is that as a group, they could not, they did not get behind um, Connor Lamb. And so I guess Connor Lamb's camp was under the perception that because Connor had a majority of the divisions supporting him, that meant an endorsement. It did not. The, Mike Boyle did not tell Connor Lamb. He was endorsed. He didn't say you got endorsed by the fifth ward. He said to him that the divisions the majority of Madrid divisions were supporting him. So apparently they interpreted that as an endorsement and then they ran that, that, that out, but there was no endorsement. And see, that's a big damn deal because what that tells you is that even after the Philadelphia Democratic City Committee had endorsed him citywide, what that tells us is that there are wards within Philadelphia that... That are not supporting Connor as a as a whole. Uh, that there are there there are some that are that have different beliefs. So in the 27th ward of Philadelphia, I live right next to 27th ward, I'm in West Philly. They endorse Fetterman for Senate. John Fetterman in West Philly. Like right here by 52nd Street, right here by University City, right here by this area where Connor Lamb, okay, literally with a pen, right? He's a pen alum like myself. This is area, neighborhood, West Philadelphia, where Connor Lamb, if he would have stayed in Philadelphia, would have lived in these neighborhoods. This is the area where he was just campaigning this week, going to SEPTA, going out to different parts of Philadelphia, trying to engage black voters. And this ward endorsed Fetterman. So there is some interesting turn of events happening right now and people are paying attention. So one of the interesting things that came out was there was that Mammoth um, poll that is very interesting because I'm a numbers man. And let me back up real quick. Conor Lamb's camp has not taken down that tweet. It's misinformed. It's misinformation. It's not true. And that's disappointing to me with him because you're keeping up these tweets you're keeping up these ads, and a lot of this stuff is being challenged by Politico, by fact check. Uh, F- fact check is it already said when the ads kind of ran had misinformation. Six ABC took the ad off in Philadelphia. Like this is, and, and granted, this is pin progress, which is the pack backing Connor. But at some point, you're affiliating yourself. He's saying that you know he's not, you know he's not the pack. But you have met those people. You done spoke to those supporters. Those are all facts. So you know what's going on. And for him to be playing or being affiliated with this. I mean, he's already had fundraisers with questionable people, right? Like Dylan Leach, who's been accused of sexual harassment multiple times. That was a state rep that was in disgrace. Tried to run for Congress, all of that. You got him at your fundraiser. You're hanging around with indicted, disgraced Corrupt Philadelphia politicians. You're you're around big labor, which is not a bad thing. But the fact that there are some people within that big labor group that have also had indictments and convictions, and you're hanging out with these groups of people, what is that saying? I mean, like Bobby Heenan, come on, Connor. Like that's weird. And so a lot of these things are happening, and it's causing a lot of questioning around. This, this, this whole, what, what kind of, but this is very establishment. Like this is what establishment politics look like to Philadelphians and Pennsylvanians. We're looking at this like we've seen this before. And this is part of the, the, the concern that voters have or the way they're looking at some of the ways he operates, right? It's not as glossy as some of the more sensational things that's being said about other candidates, but it is something that has had voters talking and that can't be ignored. So the interesting thing is is that I say all this to say that this Mammoth poll came out. So this is a big poll that came out. And they said that John Fetterman is at 44%. They said that Connor Lamb was at around uh, 23%. And they said that Malcolm Keogh is at 14%, um, which is very telling because I'm just sitting here like, you know, I'm like really, like, you know, uh, we're still, um, we're still here with these numbers, like that's crazy. Th- that there's such a huge gap between them. So the new poll that came out, um, and it, it, I'm looking at these margins. Um, the Mammoth Post says this is the favorable favorable rating, likely to support amongst Democrats. So forty four percent is at as at Fetterman. Conor Lamb has three is has twenty three percent, and Malcolm Kenyatta um, has fourteen percent. It looks like, yeah. So it's it, it's it's coming out sixty eight percent. Um, gave a favorable rating to John to John Fetterman. 68% of voters gave a, fe- a, a favorable rating. 51% gave a favorable rating to Conor Lamb. 44% said they're likely to support John Fetterman. 23% said Conor Lamb. And Malcolm Kenyatta, um, which is interesting, Malcolm Kenyatta had a 32% favorable rating but only had 14% for likely to support among Dems. And then Alice Khalil had 11% favorable rating and then an 8% likely support amongst Dems. These numbers are no joke. These numbers are very telling. So, you know, I'm a numbers man. I'm a, I can be a statistician at times. And I, I just want to say, that after all of those ads, this 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 Monmouth Mon Monmouth University uh, poll that came out was this week. So I'm telling myself, after all of the negative campaigns, after all of the negative ads, the debates that a lot of people did not watch, we're still a huge margin. John Fetterman has nearly twice as many people likely to support him than Connor Lamb and this is two weeks before the polls. There is 11% undecided. Even if Connor got all the 11% undecided, Fetterman will still have 10% more than him. He will still have ten percent more than him. Here's another interesting fact. There were a lot of like if you look at these numbers, the new numbers show Malcolm Kenyatta and Connor Lamb. There was a there was rhetoric that Connor that Malcolm Kenyatta is a spoiler for uh, Connor Lamb. Like they've been saying, if Malcolm dropped out, Connor would have a chance of winning. Well, here's a fun fact. Malcolm is not at fourteen percent compared to Connor Lamb. If you add that 23 with with 14%, that's 37. Fetterman would still be beating Conor Lamb, even if he had, you know, Malcolm's support. The crazy part is, and this is, again, a math's game. If you add it, okay, and, and this is the part that gets me the most. If you added Alex Khalil, Malcolm Kenyatta, if you added all their numbers together, so if you added the 23 with the eight, because I like to do math, and you added it with the 14 of Malcolm, the number would be 45%. That means that even if Connor had Malcolm Kenyatta and Alex Khalil, which is the other candidate running, which no one talks about her as much, he would only be beating Fetterman by one percentage point. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Like, that's how big of a margin and a lead that Fetterman has. That's so fucking big. He literally almost has more... He's literally only one percentage point less from matching them combined. You You can't... Like, what is going on? Like, what is going on? Like... And so, the funny part is, which is why these polls are interesting, he has 17% more votes in favorability rating than Connor. And what's interesting to me is, is that this actually provides my theory. So, I think that as we get closer to the primaries... I don't think that Malcolm is going to get higher than Conor Lamb. I think that Conor Lamb's ads, his increased visibility, has given him the margin. But it proves a theory that I had. And this theory is that this fight right now in the polls is between Malcolm and Conor amongst themselves fighting for second place. The conversation isn't really about... Like Conor Lamb's competition is amongst Malcolm. He ate from Malcolm's supporters. He didn't eat from Fetterman's. Fetterman is staying high on the polls. He's not knocking Fetterman down. His gains came from Malcolm's decrease. See the the logic was that people keep thinking that Connor and Fetterman are appealing for the same voters. These numbers are showing me that it's actually Connor making gains from Malcolm. but Malcolm is holding on, but the gains are not that much. The gains was like, well, it's a big number game, I guess. It's like nine vote, nine percentage points higher. They were, at one point in time, two percentage points neck and neck from the previous poll. But Fetterman continues to maintain this, 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 this high number. is not really eating at Fetterman in the way that he's eating at Malcolm. So Malcolm and Connor are, are appears to be in the polls, they're the ones fighting amongst voters. They're not fighting against Fetterman supporters. Gun-ho Fetterman supporters are pretty much staying with Fetterman. They're not moving. Maybe one or two, maybe a couple people might move. You know, these little anecdotal videos of, you know, lamb talking to black voters, a couple of people at churches, but that's not, that's anecdotal. Where is the fucking data? The data is showing that there is a wider margin and he's not eating at that that wide margin. There's a huge wall. I mean, you're skipping like, like, Votes like they're not even like Connor's in the early 30s and is in the mid 40s. You're skipping over 30s of the groups, like I mean, sorry, he's in the early 20s and Fetterman is in the mid 40s. It's percentage numbers, you're not getting those margins. Like, you need to be in the 30s to have a conversation. You're still in the early 20s. All this pack money, all this campaign ads. That's been ran on TV and you still have not made a significant dent. And the real dent has been pushing Malcolm lower. So Malcolm is feeling the burn because Malcolm has not ran any television ads. Now there's been a lot of social media push, some debate appearances, but that's not going to really move. So it's, it's, it's a wrap over it. It's It's feeling more and more like a wrap. I won't say never say never, but. It is not looking too good for those who are going against Fetterman right now. Like I said, I I can't wait to see how this all shakes out. I just know how voters get down. And there's just a lot of things that stand out to me right now. And I think we cannot keep ignoring the power of voters. Seriously, we can't. So the neighborhood. people have asked me what I thought about this. You know, there is, there was an incident at taboo. There was a, a older white man, um, from the community who was at taboo. Now y'all know taboo for those who live in Philadelphia is the old eye candy. And the old eye candy was a bar that I covered many years ago. Uh, when I was covering neighborhood racism, where that bar, um, owner named Daryl DiPiano, who's a disgraced former owner of Eye Candy that no longer exists, he um, said the N-word on camera multiple times. And it led to a lot of protests and concerns because those neighborhood bars like Woody's and others um, had a history of racial discrimination and profiling. And that incident, that camera, that moment when I broke that story, that became a moment. I remember breaking that story and the shock wave that took place. You know the 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 madness that ensued. Um, woo! It was it was huge. It was huge, and um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot. Well. Taboo was formulated, right? Taboo nightclub became the, the, the new club that took place in that old eye candy. And there has been an issue. There was a, a white gay man who's who mid-age, was drunk, but seemed to be cheerful, nonviolent, left the bar and a bouncer was found on camera. Big, big, tall uh, bouncer who was, who was black, punched this man so badly in the face he passed out. He ended up later dying uh, based on the injury. That man turned himself into authorities and has been charged for third degree murder. A lot of people have been asking me, you know, how do you feel about the, the incident? What is, what's going on? Well, first of all, I just want to say that, you know, my thoughts and prayers go out to that man's family. You know, seriously, there's no justification for that kind of violence. There's no justification for that kind of assault and now murder. You know, when you see the video, which is sad to see, we didn't know. At that moment, that man wasn't dead, but he had got injured. But the divorce, the use, the abuse of that, like that aggression was disgusting. And so I just hope that that individual's family, there's justice and and, and that things change. Now, there's been many articles that have come out talking about the bar owner's responsibility in this situation and also the fact that there's been a culture of these, these problematic bouncers uh, engaging with patrons at these bars. Now, I will tell you, as a Black person who's been going to the gayborhood for years, this is not a I I told you so, but I did tell you so. And I think a lot of us said that there was a problem with the gayborhood, the way that these— the, the bouncers was the ones doing a lot of discrimination. The policies from the owners were problematic as well. The way that they would enforce it, the way that they would racially coddle and code the the, the the transphobia that would take place with the ID checks of these individuals that would go into these bars. That was a part of the culture that we were talking about. That was a part of the stories that we told. And the, the thing is, is that you have these, mostly cishet men being these bouncers, and the the type of people they're bringing in, the sensitivity training that these people are clearly lacking, and the possible violence and liability is causing like this is a this is a, what happens when you let an institution like those bars go without any true accountability. Something like this happens when people you know you know turn the other way, turn of the other cheek, um, and it's been an issue for a while. And and I've talked about it. Many years ago, but at some point, you know, for me, that wasn't going to be my entire life's work. You know, you can only be gaslit so many times. You can only be, um, you know, bullshitted to and lied to so many times um, before you say, you know what, it's time for someone else to intervene. There's some, it's time for other people to step up. And it's just disappointing to see the neighborhood desecrate. But I've said it a long time ago that that neighborhood has too much um, white capitalism that is driving that damn community to the ground. Too many relationships with developers, too much dirty political maneuvering. It's too much going on over there. And, you know, I don't know if it was ever a great place. I, I've, there's been better days for sure. But there's just been a lot of problematic things happening. And I think that at some point, this death is definitely a wake-up call. But there have been many incidents. There was a black man who was found dead in the alley after defending a black trans woman many, many years ago, back in the, um, I want to say the early 2000s. This is not new, right? I mean, the thing is, is that in these situations, Sometimes white people have to die for people too. There was a man named Alfie McCullough who was murdered not too far from where um, the man Eric was dead. Eric Pope was the white man who was um, killed. And, you know, when that happened, you know, Eric Eric Hope, Pope died. That's the man who died last week. But this happened before. It was a man named Alfie McCullough, McCullen who was murdered not too far from where Eric was punched while defending a black trans woman. He was murdered in nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine, um, and that is, you know, look where we're at. There are people who've 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 died in those alleys. You know, Niza Morris, who was a black trans woman. Who was found dead in the back of a police car. There's a lot that has happened in that in the neighborhood that don't get the proper attention and conversations. And so to see what's been happening now, I want to say it's not a surprise, but it's disappointing. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. All I'm saying is that it's going to be interesting. The bar's response, Taboo's bar response, has been very lackluster and been criticized. But here we are. So I'll be keeping an eye out to see what's been going on with it. But I mean, there's been so much stuff going on in the neighborhood lately. There was Philly Black Pride. People are like, "Oh, you going to do Philly Black Pride? Absolutely not. Not in this pandemic." I, you know, at, you know, people say, "Oh, you don't go to clubs as a married man." Let me be clear with you: being married isn't the reason why I don't go to clubs. I was at Stratus Lounge for a, a day party uh, this past weekend. It's not that, to be honest with you, it's not being married that made me stop being crazy about going to certain gay clubs. It's just that for me, I'm just not much of a clubber anymore. Like I'm thirty, I did a lot of that in my early twenties when I was in college. And, you know, at some point, like, to be honest with you, you know, we know what the clubs are for. And it's not to say that I don't go because I'm married. It's because, one, I'm just aged out of it personally. Like, I like a nice club, a nice rooftop lounge vibe. I like a VIP section. But just the getting on the dance floor and all that, eh, not really crazy about it like that. It's not my thing, at least. And I also feel like with gay bars especially... Like, look, when I was young and I was at the club, nobody wanted to see a married man on a dance floor that they couldn't talk to. Like, what? I can't. You dancing. You looking good. Like, I look good. I'm a snack. Like, and I'm there dancing and stuff. Somebody going to want to come up. Do I want to spend the whole night being like, oh, no, I'm sorry, do I'm, I'm good. Or have to show my ring. Every, I don't want to do that. Like, no. But I like going to, like, you know, nice little chill lounges. With cute, you know, chill turnips. I don't want to be all up in the nightclub, the display nightclub, especially the gay clubs that, that 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 I go to or I went to that were fun. They were fun for single people. They weren't really, you know, or people who like to have polyamorous relationships, where that that's what they do. I'm not in a polyamorous relationship. Um, uh, you know, I'm, you know, very much so with my man and my man only. But, and I'm not judging people who are in open relationships and things. Everyone has their own twist. But I just recognize that it's it's not so much about going, but about enjoying, right? Enjoying and also recognizing comfort levels. Like, I don't want to go somewhere where I'm going to have to keep reiterating that this is not what it is. Because let me tell you, there are people who don't even care. Listen, they don't care they like, you married? That's your problem, not mine. Right, which is why I am going to go somewhere else for my comfort. Now, that might be connected to marriage, but it's also just too, I think, even outside of it. Like, I got to a certain point. Like, I think once I got to a certain point where I was like, it felt redundant, redundant. Like, the same music, the same vibe, the same types of men. You just get bored of that too. It's just like, okay. Like, I don't feel like I'm missing anything in the club. It just, trust me. The way I hear my single folks talk about the club nowadays anyway, the whole club vibe been changed to a certain degree from what I've heard. You know, there's some people I know that was like saying they're going to go to level up. I have not been to level up, y'all. For those in the neighborhood who knows about that, I'm not crazy about it. I know they say it's black on or whatever, I guess. But, you know, it's... I'm going to be quiet. Let me be quiet on that. I'm just going to say that... (laughs) That there are people who go to those clubs and they go to have a good time and they should, right? Like I'm, I, I've always envisioned that. But I have friends who told me that have went to Level Up that there is, you know, it's definitely a vibe that's like they saw people that they saw on small screens on their laptop, if you know what I mean, there. And they said it was a mess they said they go to the bathrooms. They didn't see things they were supposed to see, and then they done seen some things left on the table that was not supposed to be on the table. And then I went to stalls and saw things. I mean, it was a lot going on. I said, okay, well, I am just going to stay my ass where I am at because I'm good over here. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that. But yeah, I, I, I like to just you know, I like to do my own. I like lounges. I like VIP sections. I like, you know, parties that are comped. I don't want to pay cover. I'm a bad bitch. I just don't yeah, I I yeah, I'm good where I'm at. I'm chilling where I'm at. And you just gotta know your speed. Now for some people, they like nightclub life. They like to do all that. That's great. Have fun for me. You know, but I'm gonna have fun for me too. Alright, I'm gonna move on so next time before I get in trouble. So student loans. I'm just going to say this about student loans. If you paid your student loans off or you're someone like me who someone else paid for your student loans because you got a scholarship, you got to financial aid, need-based support. If you are not supporting these students getting this relief, shut the fuck up. I'm just, I'm sorry. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. There is a, a group of people who are literally coming for people who are struggling with student loans. I don't understand why they are so anti student loan repayment. There are people that are looking at celebrities again, that moderate hive that are like there, there are conversations of people putting pressure on Biden to sign an executive order to relieve students to the debt. Now, Biden said he's not going to do 50000 you know, even though that was the desired amount from the Elizabeth Warrens and the Chuck Schumers and other people wanted that. He says he's not going to do that, but he will do something. I think people are kind of looking like, well, would that be 10000 Somebody made a joke, said that the $10,000 won't even cover the interest on the loans they owe. Woo, ouch. Um... But there's been some people that's like feeling some type of way about it. Here's my thing about the student loan thing. If you're more mad about people getting their student loan debt covered or paid off than you are about the fact that there are billionaires out here not paying their fair share in taxes, then you are not for the people. If you are more concerned about student debt being paid off by the government more than you are about all this millions upon billions of dollars going to wars, and the defense fund, then you are not for the people. If you are complaining about student debt relief that's happening for everyday people, more than you are the, the countless amount of money that continues to go into elections and ridiculous campaign spending, then you are not for the people. There are so much money, there's so much money, I'm sorry, that is going into wasteful projects, plans, politics, and wars than the amount to relieve people of student debt. That is it. That is it. That is the post. Okay? Like, there's so much money that's being given. You know, I have to say this. And I listen, I think that, I hope that Ukraine is safe. I hope that that country is safe. I hope that people are protected. What's hard for people to understand is that we're in a country where they keep telling us there is no money. To support student loans. There's no money to support. Poverty and hunger. and, and, And public schools. And other issues in this country. But then there's articles. That we find out that. Somehow there's more billions. That can go to support the Ukraine. And support other issues around the world. And those issues are real. And those people need support. What I'm saying is. That there's clearly a pot of money. Where you can prioritize. Where you want to put the money at. I believe that there is money that can also go to supporting people with student debt. There's also money that can go to support other issues and causes. Like, where is this money? Because there's trillions of dollars in the defense fund for war, for nuclear, and everything else. And we just keep giving that money out. But then there is no work on the domestic front to support Everyday Americans who are struggling with these issues. Now, there are people who keep arguing that, oh, the financial aid thing is the reason why people can't get on board with it is because it's only supporting an elect few. Most Americans are not college educated. So, therefore, this does not impact them in any type of way. Bullshit. And I'm going to tell you why in a, in a couple of seconds. But but there's that narrative of it, it's, it's an elite thing that people who go to college or people that's in universities, this is going to help rich kids with their student debt. This is going to help everyday people. um, That this is only going to help a small subset of voters, but everyday folks who most Americans are not college educated or don't go to college. So, this doesn't impact them, they don't care about it. Let me explain something to you all, okay? Because this is the part where you got to say, are you stupid? Are you dumb? Because Here's the funny thing about the student debt crisis. So, let's break it down. First of all, this stuff in is disproportionately impacting black and brown students, okay? All of these kids who went to HBCUs, all these kids that went to these state colleges and schools that was fucked over by Sally Mae, this impacts them. Now, let's also talk about this part about people not caring and who it impacts. You know, a lot of these people are first-generation college students, You know what that means? First generation college students, that means that their parents, okay, are the ones that either took out loans or is taking financial backburners for their kids to go to college. Now, those kids take out those loans, but at the end of the day, their upward trajectory is predicated off of supporting their families, So that means that if they go to college, their parents may have not went to college. I am a a first-generation college grad in my family. My mother went to college. She finished school after I did because her company paid for her to go. I was the first in my family to get a master's degree. I was the first in my family to get my bachelor's degree from my immediate family. Here's the thing. My situation is different because my mother got her education provided for and paid for through her company. A lot of people in this, a lot of people I know who are first generation college students, their parents to go to college, they are expected to help their families. I know a lot of of my friends who are are black lawyers or got MBAs, the moment they get that six figures, a lot of that money is to help support their siblings and their other family members. It's not their money for them and them alone. And so, when you're embedded with all this college debt, that money trickles down. That Those that debts takes money from them, takes money from them to support their families. So, when you act like the student debt crisis is only for a couple of folks with money and things, that's not even true. And even and even this, and even the crazy part about the, the college argument is that it, it, the, if you think it's only about the individual and their degree and their money, You're ignoring the actual reality that most of these people are first-generation college students. Most of them are people who who have money that have to go different ways. They got families. They got children. they, They have other necessities, housing and everything else. It's not like their salary is supposed to be committed to solely paying off student debt. Are you crazy? Like, What the fuck? Like it's some, it's some people out here who are not thinking about any of this strength. So when we talk about who's impacted by the student loan crisis and debt, the student debt wars or whatever, it, it's, it's, it's really about the fact that it's, it's impacting not just them, but their families. So if you give financial aid or you give, if you give loan debt or, or student debt relief to those children, to those, to those, not children, but, well, some of them too, but to those many people in debt, that is going to create a ripple effect that not only impacts them, but their ability to support their families and to also support those, their parents, some of them. Because a lot of these first generation college students that make money, that do well, that strive, a lot of that is, is built in. They, they're, they're expected to do, you know, to do that. They're expected to, to support, those under them, they're not using that money only for them and that's what's happened to a lot of black and brown students. A lot of them in this era, these past 20 years, a lot of these individuals are, are the first generations or are, are creating that, that, that pipeline to higher education and being the first means you're in, you're, you're, you're feeling different levels of, of, of barriers and access to resources and things. Now, there's some people that have parents that went to college and, and people before then, they got generations and their legacy college people. But there's people like myself and others that I know that this is our first time navigating this. Like I have a brother that's now in college, which is great. Like we're creating this pipeline of people going to college and finishing, you know, on time and things of like that. But that's a new phenomenon. And, you know, for me, I didn't have debt, but the reality is, is that I know other people don't have those circumstances. And so for people out here to be, oh, everyone's got to pay. Do you know how this is going to fuck up the economy? Do you understand that this is going to keep people, you know, either in poverty or keep people lower? Now, granted, there are some people, right, who, who got money and, and also have student debt. Yes, there's always going to be people in circumstances, but those are the outliers. Those are the outliers. But framing this narrative that those complaining about student debt are only people with six-figure salaries and doing well off is bullshit. It's bullshit. And honestly, when you talk about what these how much debt these people are in and what you expect them to pay, do you really think that people are supposed to pay half of their checks or whatever to paying off loans? Guess who don't do that? Billionaires don't do that. That, that, that 1% don't even do it with 10%. You, you've got all these expectations of what working people do or folks who got a little bit of money do, but you're not even looking at folks who got bazillions of dollars that don't give a fuck. Sit down. Shut up. It don't make sense. And, and Biden, is politics for Biden, right? It's politics for him. And, and, and people who don't sit down and actually think about this, talk to people, play the whole broke game of people being cheap gang. Shut up. Why are you worried about money that's not yours? Why do you think, why do you, who do you think is going to get impacted by this? Why is it that there's people who get upset about work that's going to go for the greater good when there's so much greed and theft out here? And speaking of greed and theft, let's talk about it. Elon Musk, right? This man. billion bought Twitter this week. There's been a lot of conversation about will people leave Twitter, will people stay on Twitter, whatever. Honestly, the man has not bought it yet. And I'm going to tell you something, a very very controversial opinion. Or I don't think he's going to end up buying Twitter in the end. Maybe I'm wrong. And I could be wrong on it. And it's fine. But I don't know. I don't think he's going to go through with the deal right now. Like, they are in negotiations. There's been an offer and all that. But for some reason, I don't think he's going to go through with it altogether. I I mean, the, tes- the Tesla um, stock has been declining. Um, you know, there's been a lot of questions around his behavior on Twitter lately, the trolling and everything he's been doing. I don't think he's going to go through with the deal. I think that he has found a really cool sweet spot and looking like a badass saying he bought Twitter just to fuck. I think that there's a stunt here. I think it's a stunt. And I think he's having a moment, but I don't think he's going to go through. And I think they got to the end of the summer to close things down. He's not going to go through with this, in my opinion. I think this is all a troll. I think this is all a stunt. I think this is all him flexing. I think he's boasting. I think he's trying to raise his profile even higher than the heights. I think that, you know, what he's doing right now will get him time person of the year at the end of the year. I can see him being times person of the year. I definitely think he will be times person of the year at the rate that he's going. How much I want to bet. If he becomes times person of the year, Remember this conversation. But I think Elon Musk is definitely going for time person a year. I think he's trying to build his persona. I think he's trying to, to fill that, that Trump being void on Twitter. And what annoys me about a lot of people who have been on Twitter with it is like, now he's become Trump, right? In a sense of every time Trump made a post, there was always some progressive liberal, you know, stunt queen that would want to go under his post and make some little shady remark to try to get retweets and quote tweet. Can y'all stop doing that? Elon Musk does not give a fuck about what y'all think about him and what he has to say, and all the little thirsty, you know, clout chasing of oh, I'm gonna, you know, one up him. You're not one up in the richest man in the world. Leave him alone. Leave it alone. Be vigilant. Be smart. Do some other shit. But like, giving Elon all that energy ain't shit. It ain't worth it. Man. I am not quote tweeting him. I'm not responding to his shit. I don't give a fuck. Like I know he's out on Twitter doing what he do. And I'm just like, y'all take him too seriously. He's a fucking joke. He's a clown. He's a very rich man, which makes him a very dangerous man. But at some point, like, this reminds me of Trump. Like, all them people the people commenting on Trump's posts and making jokes. Like, can we just, like, if, if you gave it less energy. Like, every single... I've seen it. And there's some article I was reading at this where people were saying that, like, they were talking about with Trump, that there was this era of, like, people were, like, racing to 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 race to the wars to go after Trump on Twitter. Like they were just chasing to get the first under the comments to say something and have a take. It's like, can we stop? Oh, so played out. Like, really. Ugh. No. The day that it was announced that Trump, I mean, I'm sorry, hey, Fordian slip, Elon Musk bought Twitter. Who also, by the way, is a pendulum. Elon Musk is a pendulum. He's from South Africa. You know, like pen alums are all over the place for good or for bad. Um, he bought Twitter and he has now, uh, well, and now I'll say he's buying Twitter, I suppose. But like the day that happened, my book cover came out. I didn't tweet anything about it. About him and Twitter and all, I didn't get all into it. You know, I I wasn't I didn't talk about it as much. I I like think I said maybe one thing like this is quite a time to promote this book given what's going on, on Twitter. But I didn't give it too much energy, too much light. You know, I did a story. I was interviewed for the Philadelphia Inquirer to talk about what the future of Black Twitter is. Black Twitter going to be here. Then we're not going anywhere. Um, people are going to be on Twitter doing them. I mean, it's a moment in time. But honestly, I don't think it's in the world. And I don't think he's going to go through with it. I could be wrong, but just keep it on the beam. Speaking of corporate hypocrisy and problems, Netflix, we just talked about Netflix last week about the subscriptions and the problems with their money and their model. Well, there's already other things falling from the sky. Um, This week, they laid off several black and brown women uh, writers and editorial people. There was a company that they had under their umbrella called Toulouse. And they were hired, a lot of them were hired recently and then fired. First in the door, first hired, uh, last hired, first fired, or something like that nature. Some of them are great writers that I follow on Twitter that I, I've known for a while that came there with a go, I mean, seven months ago, someone said they had got hired seven months ago and they got fired, uh, laid off. They, they announced a series of cuts and a lot of this impacted specifically black and brown women. And others who were in that editor- editorial department and there's been some other layoffs and stuff. And now everyone's attributing this to the issues with Netflix budget, but I'm sorry, those layoffs don't even make sense because their budget, it I, I wouldn't make a dent in their budget in that kind of way. I just feel like what happened was, was that they were, they used a lot of these creatives, right? As a way to try to do image repair. Because Netflix has struggled. They've been lapsing in content creation. A lot of diversity and inclusion. A lot of things they were focused on at the helm. They hired all these black people. To do all this creative stuff. And then all of a sudden. These people lost their jobs. And we didn't hear anything back from them. And I'm just like. What's going on? And so some people don't want to admit they got laid off. They don't want to, you know, discuss it. Some people have shared it. There's already a story that um came off uh came up um with um what was the thing that came that happened? Um there was a lot of things that happened and came up during that. Like they had all this new programming. They was they was supposed to be collaborating with all these different black brands. They wanted to do all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, we we saw crickets. Right there was there was like a moment where I guess the racial uprisings, and after that, there was this push for diverse content and collaborations, and and hiring different people and bringing in new voices, and, and it was looking good, and then all of a sudden things just went south. And I think that it just shows you once you know, and, and I feel bad. First of all, let me just say, I feel bad for those who got laid off. And I, and I keep talking about this, like all these companies doing these layoffs and these, they don't give a fuck about workers. They don't. It, and and it's why I have chosen not to work for these companies. I work with them, you know, um, but I don't work for them because of that, that culture, that, that fact that you can be disposable. And replaceable, and, and Netflix, you know, like, you know, they know better. They know better. They 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 have tried to present themselves as the face of of of, of diversity, inclusion, and change. And then this happens. And what's funny is, is that you know what a lot of these um, individuals who worked at Netflix. They've told their story to the Daily Beast. There's a story out in Daily Beast that came out um, over the weekend talking about what those layoffs look like and what happened to those people, to some of them and what was going on. And that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. And it's been interesting to see that take place. You know, it's been interesting. And I, I mean, honestly... I'm not crazy about Netflix. I feel like at the end of the year, I've made up my mind that if things don't change at Netflix, if, if things are just continue to go the way they are, I might cancel my subscription for good at the end of the year. I'm just going to hold out for the new year. But it might be sooner, depending on what's going on. But I don't know if I'm crazy about a Netflix subscription. I mean, all of the shows I really liked are no longer there. Ozark is done. Um, I don't know what's on Netflix anymore. I mean, I don't watch Bridgerton. Not into Squid Games. I haven't really been into a lot of this stuff on there. They have a couple of cute documentaries that pop up every Blue Moon. Like, um, I watched White Hot, the Abercrombie and Fitch document, which was fun to watch. Very nostalgic. Very nostalgic. If you if you was in that era, that Hollister, American Apparel, I mean, yeah, American Apparel, American Eagle, this this study on um an investigation of Abercrombie and Fitch was just spot on. I remember that era like it was yesterday. And I also talked about how I miss mall culture. Like I have a brother who's, you know, 19 now. Um, And he, I mean, he doesn't know like the impact of how malls used to be. Like I go to Liberty Place, which is a little plaza. It's a plaza. It's not really a mall, it's a plaza. But like I go to the fashion gallery or the gallery as we call it, not fashion district, it's still the gallery, y'all. And that's a big-ass quote-unquote mall. But every time I go in there, it it doesn't seem like it's so big, but the people that's there physically going to it, it feels like ants. Like, I walk past and there's stores that don't really have any bodies in there. Like, I wonder how it's doing. Like, there's like no real energy in that place. Like a couple of people walk by or something, kids, you know, you know, there for snacks or whatever in the food court. But it doesn't have this like crazy, intense energy there. Like City Winery is there. um, You know, there's an AMC movie theater. But like the rest of the shopping itself, it doesn't seem like there's like a crazy massive draw. At least every time I went. And maybe that's because of the pandemic. I do find that going to a mall like that would be better during the pandemic because it's almost like semi-dead where there's lots of social distancing and space. It might be mu- much safer than Liberty Place because Liberty Place is a little congested because people really go up in there. Like that food court at Liberty Place alone, okay? They got that Bloomingdale's. They got the Victoria's Secret. They got the Aldo, which is my you know my shoe store. But that's like, you know, it's a, it's a little... It's a little different. Um, You know, I feel like there's more congestion and more traffic at Liberty Place than at the gallery, um, which says a lot. So, you know. But anyway, I love that documentary on on, uh, Abercrombie & Fitch. I highly recommend it. It's one of the few decent things to watch on Netflix nowadays. Everything else just seems just corny. Like, I'm not what following sunset and what's the other little couple show the ultimate like i don't like any of that i don't dating shows are corny to me i'm like i'm gonna let the straights have that the straights can have that like i you know i watch one show like i have zeus network and i know that's my 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 garbage tv and i've been watching bad boys los angeles like that's my that's it for me and i don't know when love and hip-hop is coming back but you know i could i would like to see love and hip-hop i don't know if they they've canceled it or cut it but like they haven't been back in a while so we'll see what happens there and wrapping up with my last um you know couple of topics this has been an episode um i've been watching atlanta on fx i'm really getting upset um there's been a conversation it's like three more episodes left i believe like this season is going by fast then the the fourth and final season has already been taped or, or or filmed but, like, this season of Atlanta has been just kind of, it's weird. Like, I've been listening to different folks who, who are fans of the show as well. You know, Donald Glover's weird side is catching up to him on this show. He's, he's just always been awkward. So, this season has just been centered on whiteness. And I guess that was a theme, that it's just showing how whiteness show up in different ways. And a lot of people are just upset because Atlanta was a very, 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 very Black show where there was like hardly any white people in the show. It's centered on blackness and black culture in a different way, a very unique way. And it was a fun time. This season, the characters, the main characters, like they keep doing all these spin-off shows, episodes in between. They're like little small mini short films, but these are not like a part of the story plot line with the, the main characters. We're seeing less and less of them in this season. Even though there's, there's been, like, three episodes, which I think is three too many, that does not let us get to actually enjoy Paperboy and Urn and the rest of the characters. It's just been more of these, like, random shows. And, like, I guess they're trying to teach something or they're trying to make you think about something differently. But it's a sense whiteness. And I'm like, I've seen shows like that. It's well done. But it's like it's the the magic of Atlanta is kind of lost in that. And at first I was like, I, I wanted to hold out before I have an opinion on it because I wanted to see what they were getting at but it just seems like like each episode there's like this weird in-between episode before you know that's kind of like random but still good and then there's the other episodes with the cast that's superb and I was like I want to see more of that so it's been really interesting what they've been doing this season but I also want to talk about something sidebar with TV that I, I promised one of my friends I was, I was telling Amanda this um I I really want to see um there's this, this thing that's been going on lately with on TV where, you know, I was having a conversation. I was like, you know, and I was hearing like, TV's really good now. Uh, there's so many good shows to watch. And to some extent, I think part of that is because movie theaters um, has failed us um, nowadays. Nowadays, like there was a time where like, Jamarcus and I love a good movie theater. We'll go to the Ritz. Barry and I do too. Barry and I are a big Oscar fan. Film snobs like we go see Oscar movies. Jamarcus and I, we we like good movies too, but we are very selective about our movies. They are always like have like female leads. Like we saw The Help, I think we saw The Help like twice. um We saw The Favorite, which is like uh, amazing. I love The Favorite, by the way. We used to go to Ritz too, like it's like art house films. They still exist. The Ritz too. I haven't been to movies in a long time. I don't think there's anything I want to see or I'm impressed to see right now. Now when the You know, the African Queen comes out. Okay, that that Viola Viola Davis film comes out later this year, which I heard Beyonce's going to be in. I will definitely be seeing that and I will definitely be throwing my money at that film. But other things that have come out, I'm still weighing on the verdict. Now, the thing about the movie theaters is that what I think happened in Hollywood in recent years, over at least over the past 10 years, is that there's been an obsession with sequels, fantasy and action movies and marvel and so because movie tickets have been going up the energy for movie theaters have been that they want to give people this crazy addictive immersive experience so now everything's in 3d everything is whatever and so they're making movies cater to these wider larger bigger things so either you have big huge blockbuster 3d animated films or you have these crazy action-packed Films that are like action packed to the to the bone. But the days of really good sweeping dramas and movies inspired by books and cute romantic comedies, those days are pretty much over in cinema right now. Um, They're not making them like they used to. Like what happened when you could go to the movies and go see Hitch? Like, where are the hitches at? Or, or Aaron Brockovich, right, where these were movies that were just great, feel good movies that were also successful at the box office. Nowadays, a lot of these types of movies are not in theaters anymore. They're not in mainstream theaters. They're like now in small art houses or, or, or small, you know, indie theaters or whatever they're not in the masses anymore. They're not mass stripping those movies. And so people say, well, what happens to those movies? Or what happens to that cute little love story? Or what happens to that sweeping drama period piece? Or or this great, really deep dive film that's a great drama. They're on TV now. They're in miniseries. They're in, you know, limited series. They're now fucking calling it, which in my opinion, let me just say this. We're a limited series the fuck out. But I'm going to get into my conspiracy theory about what I think about these films. So all these great films... That would have been good for movies are now becoming mini series on smaller budgets or great budgets that are not as expensive of making films. So with TV, right, th- there's a good new show called I think Gaslit or whatever with Julia Roberts with Sean Penn who doesn't look like himself. Great prosthetics in that 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 um that limited series. And Julia Roberts is fabulous, and I think she's definitely gonna get her an Emmy nomination. She might even actually win an Emmy. She's an Oscar winner already. Um, there's a lot of these great ones. There's one called The Offer, which the Rolling Stones panned, and I agree. It's about the making behind The Godfather. Not really crazy about that one. But then you got like uh Pose, who did the mini-series called Hollywood. But then you got some other great, you know, other great series and shows, but also limited series like you know, Mirror East Town, um, with you know Kate Winslet, where these are like they're not really TV shows. They're really extended movies. And I think what's happening is, is that these were concepts that could have been films. Some of these projects could have been films. These TV movies are, are becoming movies that could have been on, that would have like 20 years ago been a theatrical release. But now they're releasing them on streaming and on other cable channels because no major Hollywood studio wants to do a full, you know, wide release on them because they're scared they're not going to make as much money. And and arguably so I think that TV culture has played a role in that people now the best dramas are not actually in theaters anymore they're now in these mini series like the Emmys have gotten a boost of buzz because a lot of these programs are getting Emmy nominations and Emmy wins or or the the Hollywood actors that were play in those those movies are now going to TV so you're getting high quality acting and performances that are great for TV for TV movies that could have actually been theatrical movies, but because Marvel and these big Disney and these big companies and, and influences have shaped the way we go to movies, the air movies, we don't. If you look at the top 10 of uh box office mojo for films every week, most of these films are race car films, you know, psycho thrillers, some horror story, some action, some Harry Potter, some fantasy shit. It's not just a straight up drama. There's no saving private Ryan. You know, Christopher Nolan is the only one that gets to make any type of ray extreme biopic. Maybe Martin Scorsese might do something. James Cameron is doing all these fantasy sci-fi fucking films. But like what happens is just a regular Degler good movie. Like we don't see Girls Trip or Bridesmaids anymore like in the movie theaters. Like these types of movies are now becoming, you know, Hulu films or Netflix films or specials. They're not getting the full wide releases anymore. And so are all these really great biopics and dramas. People are no longer putting them on TV anymore. I mean, putting them on theaters anymore. They're putting it on streaming. And so when people said to me, why, TV, why is TV better now? It's because so many of these projects that could have been movies and theaters have now been rejected. And now producers and and, and talent is taking the stuff and putting it out there on streaming. And they're also working with better budgets, right? Because these movies are hella expensive. The the cost to make some of these films, you could take some of that money and make an entire miniseries on HBO with that money. And, and have a, a bigger release, have a bigger you know, investment in bang for your buck. There are things that are hits right now on streaming that would have flopped in movie theaters. And so, I, I just think that's the new model with TV now. I think that's the new model with, with entertainment. And it's it's an adjustment. Like, I'm going, I feel like I'm going to the movies less. I'm going to the movies less. I don't know the last time I went to the movies. When did the last time I went to the movies? Did I pay for a movie ticket? Hmm. Maybe Joker? I think Joker was the last time I went. And I think that was before the pandemic, yeah. I think Joker was like the last movie ticket I purchased was Joker, because Jamarcus and I went to go see Joker. And Joker came out in 2019, fall 2019, right before the pandemic. I don't think I've been to the movie theaters yet. Hmm. Oh, I think I went to see Minari. Yeah, I went to see Minari. Okay, Minari, actually. And I was at an indie theater, and that was in 2021. Last spring, I saw Minari. Oh, God. I don't think I've been back since. Because I'm trying to remember, what would I have went to go see? Like, has there been any? I mean, Minari, because it was Oscar, and I went to go see that. Everything else I've streamed. I don't think I've paid for a movie ticket since then. So it's been definitely over a year. Yeah, I didn't go to the movies at all in twenty twenty. Yeah, it's weird. Like I'm just thinking about that now. Like I really have not been to the movies. Twenty nineteen was like like twenty twenty one at one time, but that was like a small theater. But like I haven't been back really. I haven't really seen anything. So. Hmm. So much, so much. Well, and wrapping up, um, I'm getting ready for commencement and graduations for my some of my students, um, and getting ready for that. And I just wanted to say to people, you know, um, there's a lot of graduations going on. This this month is about to be lit. Um I'm going to be a part of the commencement ceremony, which I'm excited about. So, you know, the cap and gown, all that. I get to be a part of it. Um, I don't think I wear a cap. I don't, I know how they're going to address it, but I'll be at someone's commencement. I don't, I'm excited. Change having a big, huge commencement. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see how this goes. Do I pass out diplomas? How does it work? But I just, I'm just excited about that. And I, and I've been hearing a lot of people who are having graduations and stuff and getting ready for that. Let me tell y'all something right now. Um, I I, I I will say this. For people, I know prom season, I think, is wrapping up because people are doing commencements or people are still doing proms. Be smart. There is a sad story. It's kind of it's, it's sad. There was a young black girl who was in Texas. I think in Houston. I think she's from Houston. But she had a prom dress. I don't know if you heard about this story. She was at prom. Well, she was going to prom. And I think she had a prom, like, you know, send-off. And she took a picture with a, I guess her boyfriend, her date. Her date had a gun, a big, huge handgun. She had a handgun in her hand and they were posing and with the guns and as for prom photos. And she was a straight A student who was, you know, being honored at her high school. And she also got a scholarship to Prairie View. And now there's taking the scholarship away from her. I don't think they'll let her go to graduation because the photos went viral. And now she's lost her scholarship or financial aid support from, from Prairie View. And she also isn't, I guess, being allowed to graduate or she's not being honored at graduation or something of that nature. And it's just sad. It's sad because, you know, someone brought up on social media that there's tons of s- pictures of white girls in the South um, you know, taking pictures with guns and doing similar things. Was it in poor taste? Yes. But for all of those things to happen like that, that is that is speaking volumes. That is wild. Um, I think that, I thought it was to say to people who are parents, people who are, you know, got siblings or whatever, just make sure that you don't show your ass at graduation or prom, don't do anything that I wouldn't get caught doing. No, I'm joking. Don't do anything. Don't don't do dumb shit. Be smart. Um, I I remember telling having that conversation with my brother last year when he was graduating. It, it's gotta be reiterated. uh when I heard this, it just was it just came upon me to say, you know what? I should just tell my listeners, like if you got brothers or siblings or folks. Graduate, especially our people, especially black folks. Just tell them, be smart. I just feel so bad for that young lady because it's like she went this far and got this close and then this happens. And it's like so just so disheartening. So if you've got siblings or family or whatever, be smart. Love on them. Tell them seriously. You're just close to the finish line. Don't fuck this up. And and also take that metaphorically about whatever you got going on. Remind yourself that when you get annoyed and you're ready to pop off, think about that before, before you drop off. Seriously. And, you know, we'll see what happens. So until then, as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Owens. Use the hashtag Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.